Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are good, that you overwhelm our days with good. You are good and you do good, and we are the recipients of that blessing, of that goodness. Help us in our meditation and in our worship through the word that we would experience that goodness and then ultimately reflect that goodness for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember the MasterCard ad campaign, Priceless? Do you remember that? There was one of them about a baseball game. This was back in 1997, so these prices are a little bit out of whack, okay? But they show a young man and his father entering into a baseball stadium, and it says, two tickets, $46. Two hot dogs, two popcorn, and two sodas, $27. One autographed baseball, $50. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. You know, money can buy you happy moments, but it cannot buy you happiness. Enduring joy comes as a gift from God. Stated further, unless God provides enduring joy, all the pleasures of this life fade away. All pleasures have a duration of enjoyment and a duration of afterglow. Eat the perfect meal. Enjoy the perfect date. Experience the best vacation. See the best sunset. We want to repeat these experiences because of how they make us feel. This is natural. Everyone enjoys the mountaintop experience. But your wife is not going to make you sausage for every meal. So you have to get over it and wait for the next sausage meal. Our enjoyments fade when they are only based upon temporary items. As we move our way through chapters 4 and 5 of Ecclesiastes this morning, we need to see that the good things of this life cannot produce enduring joy. Rather, the ways of this life press us to realize that we need more than this world can provide. We will see this by considering these four general truths. We'll spend most of the time on the first one. That's a little warning, so you don't panic at any point. Man's selfishness results in sleeplessness, sickness, and frustration. We'll notice that in verses 8 through 17. Secondly, God gives joy for the journey. We'll see that in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Then as we transition into chapter 6, and our third item will be riches, honor, and good things without rest are useless. We'll see that in the first six verses of chapter 6. And then finally in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 6, we'll notice that God knows 
the now and the next. I encourage you, write this down or take a picture of the screen because it will serve as a good way for you to meditate on this later. If you were to have these four items and and then meditate through the passage, the passage will come. You'll, You'll see the sense of it. You'll get the gist of it. It is challenging as we fight through some of this literature. It's not straightforward in all of its ways, but I think as you give it close attention and consider it, uh, the, the concepts are, are available for us to consider. So the first item of our consideration is this. Man's selfishness results in sleeplessness, sickness, and frustration. What we notice in verses 8 and 9 is that man doesn't mind injustice on the way to profit. Man doesn't mind injustice on the way to profit. Look at verses 8 and 9. He writes, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watching, excuse me, is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Bureaucracy is clearly seen in this section. People over people over people over people just looking for someone else to get the job done so that there is a product. Injustice is, uh, in this process is seen in communism. In socialism and in capitalism, we prize the American way, but there is plenty of injustice along the way in our country, as well as in socialist countries and communist countries. Someone is always getting the short end of the stick, and someone is getting fat off of someone else's work. This is the way it is. When I was thinking about this is the way it is, because I think you just have to read it and and take it for what it's worth. This is just the way it is. People over people over people. Someone's doing the work. Other people are getting the product. This is the way it is. And it reminded me of the Disney animated movie Ratatouille. Remember little Remy? That rat could cook. I don't know if you've ever met a rat that could cook, but in Disney, rats can cook. And this rat was convinced that humans were not the enemy. And his father was convinced that humans are the enemy. And so there's this scene where they're out in the streets of Paris in front of a shop. And his father makes him look up. And he looks up and there are these traps, rat traps, with dead rats hanging from them. And his father said, this is the way things are. And you think, all right, that's going to be the end of the scene. But Remy, Remy sits there and thinks, this can't be the way it is. If, if we're stuck with the way things are, then we can never make any progress. I see better things, essentially, is what this little rat brain thought. And in Disney's world, it's true. In Disney's world, the humans band together and help the rats, and the rats band together and help the humans, and they cook a great meal for whatever that dude's name was that only swallows the food if he loves it. All right? The, You've seen the movie. If you haven't, you should probably watch it. It's pretty interesting. It's kind of cute, etc., etc. The point is, this is the way things are. 
Remy thought it could be different, and Disney pictures it differently, but no, this is the way things are. People kill rats. It's not going to change. Now, there are some people that think that rats have the image of God in them, like humans do, or that humans don't have the image of God in the, the rat does. Well, that's a different animal altogether. I'm talking about the person now. That person's demented in his thinking. Well, we, we see all the ramifications of those terrors. The point is, injustice on the way to profit. Profit many times comes by way of injustice. It's as the famed expression, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Solomon gives a little glimmer of positivity in verse 9, a little, a little method or a little benefit to the method in verse 9. He says, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. The New King James reads, it, reads the end of the verse this way. Even the king is served from the field. New American Standard. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Any way you take it, here's what you have to see. Someone is being mistreated in the way to cultivating the field. Yes, injustice. But... Everyone has something to eat because the field is cultivated. Both the poor, the intermediate, and the rich. If the field is not cultivated, ain't nobody eating. Right? So even in the injustice, there is still a product that is needed. Man's selfishness is demonstrating for us this situation. Despite the injustice, there is a product that people can eat. Verses 10 through 12 give us this concept. Riches do not satisfy. Riches do not satisfy. Take a look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We can capture capture that with we're not satisfied with riches. The riches don't satisfy. I just need a little bit more. Which is your favorite million? The next one. What's your favorite Super Bowl? The next one. What's your favorite meal? The next one. You know how it goes. If you live in in the past remembering a meal, you will starve. Right? Like last night's chicken parmesan. That's only going to carry you along for just so long. Well, I really, it was really good. I don't, wanna, I don't want to ever eat something else because it'll mar the chicken parmesan. Well, you're just going to starve and die. It's like the person that shakes a famous person and says, I'll never wash this hand again. That's kind of disgusting. No one's ever going to want to shake your hand either. <laughs> Riches don't satisfy. There's always a, a desire for more. And, and the Bible warns us of these things in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As much as I would love to dive into that passage, it's just a reference to help us to recognize that riches do not satisfy. We look a little further in the passage and we see that there's no advantage to riches. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? 
Now, this is interesting because you can take that two ways. And the way I take it when I first read it, because I'm a, well, because I like to eat, is here's what I think. Those who are rich and they see the, the food, they eat the food, and they grow, right? They increase who eat them. But that's probably not what Solomon's getting at. The more money you have, the more mouths you have to feed. The rich have many friends. As soon as they're not rich anymore, for some reason, and I don't know what it is, but the friends go away. When a person accumulates wealth, there's more money, more mouths to feed, more taxes to pay. Solomon talks about this in Proverbs 14. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Proverbs 19.4, wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now remember, these are proverbial statements. This is not true in every instant, right? There are people who are poor that are loved and cared for. There are people that are rich that care for others, and they have friends because of more than their wealth. But proverbial wisdom also lets us know about generalizations to truth. And Solomon is dealing with that here, and Solomon dealt with it in the book of Proverbs. As we look a little further in the text, there's no real rest with riches. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Well, whether it is due to stressing over what to do with all of his money, or whether it is due to having so much food in his body and the richness of his food because of his lavish lifestyle, the rich person is envisioned in this text as having sleepless nights. And this is contrasted by the one who works. The one who is working tirelessly, his body and his mind are so tired that he cannot not sleep. This, again, is a generalization. This is proverbial literature. These are not hard, fast rules. There are people that work really hard that that can't sleep for some medical reason, right? But the point is this. Get fat on luxury, and you have some side effects that don't let you have the rest that you need. So the concept that we're seeing in verses 10 through 12 is that there's um, that riches don't satisfy. It, it, it produces no satisfaction. It makes many people that you're responsible for, and then it doesn't even allow you to sleep. As we move to verses 13 through 17 now, riches, no matter how you handle them, are vain. Riches, no matter how you handle them, are vain. This is a very interesting section. He lets us know right at the outset that it's sickening. Verse 13, there is a grievous... Evil, the word grievous is sickening. There is a sickening evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. We're going to go through the text, but I want to look at the end of this little subsection just for a moment because it gives us a little, a little concept for our consideration as we move through. In verse 17, Solomon uh, is, is letting us know that these endeavors produce frustration. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much, much vexation and sickness and anger. He's going to give us some categories to hang ourselves on, to give us some, some points to, to consider. But he lets us know at the beginning that this is sickening. 
And he lets us know that it's grievous, it's frustrating, and it produces anger. All of this, that, that riches, no matter what you do with them, there is vanity involved. He speaks in verse 13 about hoarding, hoarding. He says, this is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. We're not talking about someone saving for the future. We're talking about someone being a miser. Everyone knows all about the Christmas thing with Ebenezer Scrooge and all that stuff. And what that does to a person. Of course, this is just someone's secular thought on the matter. But the, the point is valid, right? Hoarding money results in frustration and hurt. He moves in verse 14 to talking about waste. He speaks of waste. In verse 14, those riches that he hoarded were lost in a bad venture. They were lost in a bad venture. Well, what happened? Well, I think if I invest my money in this, I'm keeping it safe, and I'm going to have a greater return. This will be great. Something good is going to happen. And guess what? Again, this is proverbial. Because it doesn't happen in every situation. Some people end up, they die with lots. They, they didn't lose it in a bad venture. But this can happen to a person is one of the things that Solomon is warning us. Oh yeah, keep it all to yourself. Hog it all. And hurt yourself. And then, let's see it all go away in a bad venture. What can you do if a, if a tornado strikes and, and all of your savings that you buried in the ground are taken away with it? What are you going to do then? God speaks about this elsewhere in the book of Haggai, chapter 1 and verse 6, where he speaks to the people of Israel, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Lost in a bad venture. He speaks of wasting. Then he speaks in verse 14. At the end of the verse, he speaks of having nothing to pass on. Because of this bad venture... He says he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He has nothing to, 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 hand him, to hand to him. There's nothing to pass on. There's no inheritance. And the Bible speaks about the responsibility of parents in this regard. Now, it doesn't give us specifics. It doesn't say, leave your child a million dollars. It doesn't say, leave them a hundred thousand dollars. It says to hand them something. It might not even have to be Money. What if you've taught them the ways of the Lord? What if they have learned the fear of the Lord from you? What if they have learned how to navigate through life regardless of all of its ebbs and flows, ups and downs, goods and bads? This is something you're handing to your child. Of course, the context here is riches, and so we have to see it that way, that there is a, an inheritance to pass on, and the Bible talks about this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 14, for children are not ob obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And in Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And so we see that there's something to be done here. Riches, they bring sickness and they can bring sadness and they can bring disappointment he then speaks in verses uh, verse 15 he reminds us that we cannot take riches with us verse 15 as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand 
In other words, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. I, gotta, I have to say it. Thither. It's the King James. Naked shall I return. Thither. I like it. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. I think the King James has, and it is certain that we cannot take anything out. Listen, amass a pile. Maybe it'll be a treasure trove full. Maybe it'll be so much that you have to tear down your barns and build bigger barns. And then, after we do this project, we shall take our ease and eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Oh, you fool. You didn't know that this was the night of your death. And guess what happens to all the stuff? It's not yours anymore. You're going out dressed in a nice suit. It'll eventually not be nice anymore as well as the rest of your carcass. It's, this is the way it is. We can't take riches with us. Verse 16, he tells us that there is no gain in it all. Verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? We have a return of our air burger. But I came across another expression that I thought was equally interesting. Airburger came out of my demented brain. Well, this one came out of someone else's demented brain. Doug Wilson describes this as balloon juice. <laughs> Air. You got nothing. So I wanted to share with you just a summary of this section. He's really excellent with words. So, so listen carefully. It's on the screens I just want to give you this summary of this section from Doug Wilson's perspective. Ditch diggers, Solomon tells us, sleep better than the anxiety-ridden rich. A rich man who is a fool is destroyed by his own blessings. If that rich man has a child, he will be born naked, the same condition his father will be in when he is born into the next world. A man arrives without possessions, and he leaves without possessions. In the interval, while he does have all his stuff, he cannot sleep because he worries about it. What a deal. But if he works hard and frets and worries a whole lot, he can make sure that his fine clothes, for the short time he does have them, are nothing but nice wrapping paper for ulcers. Solomon calls it a sore evil. Here he is, there he goes. He labored all that while for the whistling wind, working to amass his very own treasury of balloon juice. For that reward, he ate his meals in darkness, suffered his sorrow and wrath, and added it to all his sickness. Better him than me. You see, this is what happens when this world is our home. When the gift is the prize. When the gift is the satisfaction. When the gift is the joy. Riches make happy moments. Make no mistake about it. If you can spend some money on a good meal, you will probably enjoy it. 
If you can spend some money on a good vacation, you will probably enjoy it. It's not guaranteed, but probably enjoy it. But that will not endure. The, the meal will not last. The vacation thrill will not endure. It is the gift giver that produces lasting joy, not the gift that was received. In verse 17, Solomon tells us that this selfish way yields much frustration. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And so I think we can clearly see the concept that man's selfishness results in sleeplessness, sickness, and frustration. One might conclude from Solomon's argument that life's endeavors are pointless, futile, maddening, sickening, and sorrowful. But instead, instead of that conclusion, I have a different one for you. Solomon speaks of the good things that we receive from the hand of God. This is how he transitions in verses 18 through 20. And what we'll notice in this section is that God gives joy for the journey. God gives joy for the journey. This has come up for us in our discussion over the course of our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of the truths that we realize as we truly navigate through life in accordance with truth that there are many joys that can and should be had by those that are the followers of God in the midst of the futility that other people experience. We will have some of the same ebbs and flows in life. But when our source of joy is not the ebb and the flow, but God himself, the joy amasses, it grows. Solomon has seen In life, both goodness and beauty. Look what he says in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. What I see to be good and fitting. Good is the general term for good. Uh, This is a good thing. And fitting is the word for beautiful. What I have seen to be good and beautiful is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. I think you could probably summarize verse 18 with just a very simple phrase that you're familiar with. Ready? Stop and smell the roses. Stop. Just stop. There are irritations in the day. There are irritations on the road, right? Everyone's out for themselves when you're driving down the street. It's irritating. But you know what? If you can take a deep breath, I'm driving in a vehicle that's getting me somewhere. Like, I have housing around me moving at however many miles an hour down the street. My brakes work, I hope. Your car stops. It goes when you press on the accelerator for most of us, sometimes slowly, sometimes fast. You're you're surrounded by blessing in the midst of this irritation. 
you go to work and you're like, man, my boss or my coworker or these lazy people, whatever it is that can come up for a reason for complaint. You have a job. You go into your house and, and something's not working quite right. The, the, the faucet's leaking, a, a, a picture fell off the wall, whatever it is, you have a house. The house is dirty. I, I worked really hard yesterday. house is clean. And, and look at all the stuff all over the place. It's because wherever there are oxen, the crib is not clean. The reason that your house is a mess is not, it's, it's because you're not living there alone. When you live alone, you can put stuff away after yourself and, and you don't have to deal with, with a mess unless you make it and then you can blame yourself. Stop. Smell the roses. It's good. It's good in this life. You have a wife or a husband. You have children. There are other people. These things have, have gone for one reason or another. Whether the Lord takes them or they've split on their own. It's hard. It's difficult. There's so many things that we take for granted in the midst of the every day, got to get this done. I've got this list, these things to do, this burden, and it presses down and and pretty soon, we're 50-something, and our kids are out of the house, and we're like, man, can I have those days back again? You tell me. You tell me. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. The top half of our crew are getting ready to, to split. It's like, all right, man, these moments, look at my son Asa's just glowing face. He's filled with it. Whatever it is, he's filled with it. <laughs> and it's, it's fun. He can produce a lot of angst in our house. But he, he's filled with life. And one day, that life is going to be living somewhere else. Stop. Take it in. Enjoy it while it lasts. This is a gift. It's a gift from God. And if you see it differently, you're going to squander it like the last paragraph. It'll be sickening, angering, frustrating, and it'll bring vexation in your soul. But if you look at the opportunities that God sets before you in your day-to-day life and say, God, you've gifted me with this opportunity to deal with turmoil, difficulty, frustration. You've gifted me with with time. You've gifted me with life. God gives us these privileges. They are an entrustment. Stop and smell the roses. Remember that God has granted you days in verse 18. It says, and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. God grants life, and as the, the Apostle Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. So eat, drink, enjoy your lot. That's what's been appointed to you. Enjoy it. You wanted five children, but God gave you one. You wanted two, but God gave you five. God grants, that's, that was not about me, just so you know. 
I want all five of mine. God grants wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them. Power to accept his lot and rejoice in this toil. This is God's gift. That's what verse 19 tells us. Look at what it says. Everyone also to whom God has given, God has given wealth, and God has given possessions, and God has given power to enjoy them, and God has given the power to accept his lot, and God has given the power to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. God doesn't just entrust us with ability. He entrusts us with time. He entrusts us with skill. He entrusts us with a job. He entrusts us with finances. He entrusts us with the ability to enjoy the the product and to enjoy the toil and the difficulty. This is the gift of God, and it's only one of His gifts, and it's not even His best gift. It's not even close to His best gift. There are greater things still than this gift. It's just one of the many gifts he has given to us. Did you know, I want you to think, take a deep breath with me. I need to take a deep breath. Did you know that God can fill you with such joy today that you don't look back at the glory days? Do you know that? And this is one of the points that Solomon is driving at here. Look at verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He tells us in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 10, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Stop looking backwards to something better. Instead, God can entrust you with joy for today. So much joy that, yes, you might look back at some pictures of your kids. You might look back at some pictures of a vacation or an anniversary or or your wedding day and look back with fondness. But it's not because you want to go and relive those days. It's just a great part of who you are. And it helps you navigate the next day. God fills you with joy for what he has allotted to you right now, so much so that you don't look back and pine for yesteryear. Don't settle for second best. It's easy to pine. It's easy. It comes naturally. But you know what comes supernaturally? Joy. Sustaining, enduring joy comes only supernaturally. It is a grace gift from God. Stop looking backwards. Look back and reflect. It's good. Don't stick yourself there. Don't get stuck there. Let that propel you forward to what God has left for you. There is a joy that is coming that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What is next? Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The third item of our consideration is this. Riches, honor, and good things without rest are useless. Riches, honor, and good things 
without rest are useless. Look at please at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods, and he also has no burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and its darkness, excuse me, and in in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. Well, we have to Try to summarize this as quickly as possible. Solomon paints a picture that you have either felt or heard about that there are those that have it all, but joy and satisfaction is missing. Derek Kidner wrote, Koalet, that's the term for the preacher or um, the, the assembler, Ecclesiastes. Koaleth is very far from holding that man has rights rights which God ignores. It is rather that man has needs which God exposes. Oh, what a, that's an important statement, ladies and gentlemen. Solomon is not saying, oh, God owes me more. Give me more. This isn't working out. He's letting us know that all that God does in this life is exposing our weakness and our sinfulness and our brokenness and our need for Him. God is showing us that we need Him. And Solomon is showing us. It seems like he's got something else going on, but the more you read this, I think you're feeling it. He is letting us know that there is no other way to live than to know that there is more beyond the sun. That there is a God who superintends over all that He has made. That there is a treasure in heaven that He wants to see and meet and experience to have fullness of joy forevermore. Solomon calls this an evil that presses heavily on man. That's what it says in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on man. This man in this illustration that Solomon gives has money, possessions, and he has honor. He has everything he desires, but no satisfaction. I wonder if anyone else has ever thought that. I can't get no satisfaction. Ooh, that sounds like good lyrics to a song. Maybe I should write it. Oh, someone already wrote it. But I try... And I try, but it's not coming. Why? Why no satisfaction when I have riches, possessions, and honor, and everything I could want? Why? Why does it not come? Because God didn't give him power to enjoy them. That's what it says in verse 2. God gave him all this other stuff, but not power to enjoy them. The power was available. The grace was refused because the gift was the treasure instead of the giver being the treasure. 
Someone else enjoyed it instead because after his days were over, he was long gone, someone else said, hey, this is, I, I can do a lot of fun stuff with this. So they, they got it on. They had a lot of fun. They did all kinds of stuff with his money that he wasted uh, or, or actually didn't waste. He, he accumulated it all. Again, this is proverbial. Some people find some joy in the things that they spend their money on. But I think, generally speaking, wealth brings no enjoyment, verses 1 and 2 tells us. You press the scene a little bit further, and he has a hundred children. This was seen as a measure of prosperity. And I think, well, if I have a hundred of them, at least some of them are going to like me. It's going to work out in some way. You know, the, the more you have, someone eventually is going to think you're a swell guy. So, so this is the scene. Have a hundred kids. He has many days in verses 3 and verse 6. He has, <coughs> excuse me, good things in verse 3, but he's unfulfilled. He's unfulfilled and he's unlamented. Look what it says in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods. He has the goods, but he's not fulfilled, and he has no burial. He's not lamented. In other words, nobody cared that he died. So they didn't have calling hours. They didn't have a funeral. No committal service. No memorial service. Now, this is used elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah, very interestingly, speaking about Jeconiah. Jeconiah was a wicked leader over Israel that eventually was cursed by God for the way that he led them basically into the, the last captivity. Uh, listen, listen to what, what Jeremiah twenty two eighteen and 19 says. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah is another name for him, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, my brother, or oh, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, Lord, and oh, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried. Dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Like a rat. You caught the rat in the rat trap. Rat trap. What are you going to do with it? Oh, out in the back we have this little stone. It says um, Rat E. Clark. Right? Here it is. Here he is. We're going to paint a little picture of this rat. We're going to bury him. And, and every day we're going to go visit him. Who, who buries a rat? Someone probably has. Most of us wouldn't. We have, we have mice. We have mice in our house. It's irritating. It's like we haven't had mice in years. We have mice. So we putting out the traps. Sorry if you don't like that sort of thing, but I don't want them in my house. I don't want them eating my food. I don't want my wife not going downstairs to do the laundry. So we're getting rid of them. And sometimes there's a snap. And then I've got to get rid of this thing. I don't bury it. I throw it in the garbage. That's what's going on with Jehoiakim or Jeconiah. And that's what happens with this rich guy in Ecclesiastes 6, nobody cared that he died because he is a selfish pain in the backside. That's the idea. It says, even though he's wealthy, has all these kids, nobody cares. I say, he says at the end of verse 3, a stillborn child is better off than he. Why? Because it doesn't have to deal with all the nonsense. It's a favorable experience to just die before experiencing the evil of this world than to die the way this guy did. 
pretty basic. Is Solomon back to trying to depress us? It feels like it. Isn't that the way that paragraph kind of sounds? Well, again, he's driving at something, and so we're going to come to that next section, verses 7 through 12. God knows the now and the next. God knows the now and the next. Verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the poor? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whoever has come to be has already been named, or excuse me, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage? What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon starts this next section by reminding us of the futility of life. Verse 7, we work to eat, and then we need to eat again, so we work some more. Work, eat, work, eat, work, eat. Come on, if you guys were really engaged, you'd say, work, eat, you, you know, you would have just been real, really on this, okay? But it's like, that's the way it is. Oh, you got to work, you got to eat. got to work, you got to eat. If you stop working, you can't eat. And if you do stop eating, you can't work. You need it both. It's just an endless cycle. Is this true for the, the wise person as well as the fool? Yeah. Is it true for the rich person as well as the poor? Yeah. If you stop, eventually your money will exhaust, you'll run out. It's true for both rich and poor, wise and fool. Let's capture this with the words of Philip Ryken. He wrote this, it is better to be wise than foolish, of course, but even wise people have desires that life does not fully satisfy, nor can uh, noble uh, poverty deliver us from desire. The poor man described in verse 8 is wise enough to know the right way to live. So maybe he can avoid all the disappointments that rich people have when they expect money to give them meaning and purpose in life. Yet when it comes to satisfying desire, the poor man will be as disappointed as anyone. Neither wisdom nor poverty proves to be an advantage. Verse 9, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Better is what you have than what you wish for. Better is a bird in the hand than two in the bush. The grass always, and I'm going to change the phrase just a little bit, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. An insatiable desire for more is not the way to go through life. It's a vain way to go through life. It's striving after balloon juice. It's going to get you nowhere. As we get to verses 10 and 11, it's a bit of a challenge here. The long and the short of verses 10 and 11, in the short time that we have left, is that God is in control over the affairs of life. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing surprises Him, and who can dispute with Him? Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. Well, who knows this? 
God does. And God also knows that, he, uh, that man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? How did, how did arguing with God work for Job? Do you remember? I'll, I'll give you a summary statement from Job in Job 42. The, the Lord answered, uh, excuse me, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. In verse 6, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Instead, I will propose to you a way we should talk with the Lord, like it says in Isaiah 64 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. What a difference between those discussions with God. God, why? God, how? God, when? This isn't the way it was supposed to be. God, I'm yours. Do what you want. Do it how you want. I might not like every, every feeling. I might not like every turn. I might not like every twist. But I am yours. And you do what you want. I want your will. This is what happens when we come underneath the authority of God. This is truly what the fear of God is all about. The fear of God is not trembling in a corner somewhere saying, oh, I hope he doesn't strike me. The fear of God is recognizing that God is God. He is to be worshipped. He is to be loved. He is to be obeyed. He has a right to rule over me. I want his way. Even, even when it contradicts my felt needs. The chapter closes with two questions that Solomon doesn't answer in the context. He doesn't answer it here. The two questions, what is good for man now and what comes next? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What is good for man now? What comes next? What is on the other side of the sun? One of the prophets answered the first question for us in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Solomon has already given us an answer at the end of chapter 5. Enjoy the journey that God has given you, recognizing that He has allotted this time to you. Enjoy what He's given. Enjoy the process. Receive from Him joy in the midst of vanity. Then what comes next? God knows, and He has told us 
in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This is something that Solomon brings up numerous times in the book, but most clearly communicated at the very end of the book. Take a look there with me, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. In verse 13, he writes, The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We know what's next. We don't know what's next under the sun. Like after, you, after your days are done, you can't control what happens with your kids. You can't control what happens with the church that God has called you to be a part of. Once, once you're done, you're done. You don't know how it's going to go, what's going to turn. I, I know where all things are going to turn, though. I know how it ultimately ends because God has revealed it. There's a day I'm going to stand before my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I will give an account of the deeds done in my body, whether they're good whether they're evil, that's the truth. Are you ready for what's next? Are you ready for what's next? There's only one way to be ready. Where is the enduring joy? How do I access enduring joy? Because that, That's really what this portion is about. Two people, right? This guy, riches and wealth, power to enjoy. This guy, Riches, wealth, honor, everything his heart desires, no joy, no satisfaction. Same stuff, maybe more here. Maybe more on this guy's side of the column than this guy. This guy, joy. This guy, none. Where does the enduring joy come from? One of the evidences of a fruitful walk with God is joy. Did you know that? The fruit of the Spirit is. The evidence of the Spirit is. Love, joy. Joy. Real joy. The kind of joy that the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1 is overflowing. It's a fullness of joy. It's, a, it's an oozing of joy in us and outside of us because of what God has done. And there's a joy that endures beyond the temporary because we don't walk with God every second of every day. There are times that we choose us and thus the joy goes away and we, we seek to repent and restore and experience that joy once again. But the enduring joy, there's an enduring joy that will never be taken from us. It's spoken of, say in Psalm 16, at my right hand there are, what, pleasures forevermore? Pleasures forevermore. There's fullness of Joy. In Jesus, two times in Matthew chapter 25, made this statement to, to this, in this parable. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I wonder, could you, could you think this through? Does God's joy ever stop? Why? Because it's who He is. And he doesn't change. God is always joy. Which is why we can say, when I'm walking in the power of the Spirit, I will always exhibit joy. 
And one day when I'm in his presence, never, ever, ever going to be walking outside of the ordained will of God ever again, there'll be joy day in and day out forever. This joy has been secured for you and for me because of what Jesus Christ has done by laying his life down as a a once-for-all sacrifice to bear my sin, to bear your sin. Jesus offers to you and I a relationship with God that results in eternal joy. Joy for the journey, joy for the now, joy forever, because joy is a gift that comes from God. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Accomplish your will in Jesus' name. Amen.